We've always been told that it was the suffragettes who won votes for women in Britain, but the closer we look, the less true that seems to be. Using mainly the work of women historians, we've seen how the campaign of Emmeline Pankhurst and the Women's Social and Political Union she set up, the suffragettes, looks more like a catalogue of blunders. Each of them made votes for women less likely. Last time, we saw yet another major miscalculation, escalating the campaign of violence in 1911 right in the middle of serious parliamentary discussions over a bill to give women the vote. And it looks as though the suffragettes escalated their violence not to win votes, but to make money. Today we'll look at how the Liberal government introduces its now notorious Cat and Mouse Act for hunger strikers. Christabel Pankhurst declares all men rapists at the same time as declaring war on the Labour Party, even though all the Labour MPs agreed on giving women the vote. And we'll explain why in December 1912 a bill for women's votes is defeated in Parliament for the first time for a generation. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. While the first so-called conciliation bill to give some women the vote was being discussed in 1910, the WSPU called off its rather out-of-control campaign of disruption and declared a truce. The bill was halted because an election was called, but intelligent suffrage campaigners expected, quite correctly, that it would be brought back as soon as the new parliament met. There was no need to panic. But the suffragettes ignored all of that. Without waiting for a new conciliation committee to start, they seized the moment to restart their campaign of violence, indeed to begin to scale it up very significantly. And historian Martin Pugh has argued that the reason the suffragettes restarted their campaign of violence was not their frustration that the bill had been lost, it was because they were running out of money. So what evidence is there for what sounds like an outrageous statement by Pugh? We've seen in earlier discussions that the Pankhurst suffragettes had become a money-spinning operation. Some observers at least perceived it to be a cash cow, operating rather too much for the personal benefit of the Pankhursts. And indeed, Emmeline and Christabel had begun to live in considerable, we might say rather surprising comfort, even though they had no other source of income. Now, we also know that 1910 had been a bad year for the WSPU, Historian Anita Sama has shown that without the usual high-profile militant stunts, coverage in the press had dried up. Even though there was a parliamentary committee actively considering women's votes, there had been no leaders in the Times on women's votes for six months. And perhaps as a result, the WSPU had seen its income plummet in that year from 33000 to 20000 In fact, its financial position was only rescued at the last minute by an additional 9,000 raised just a week before the end of the truce at an enormous event in the Albert Hall. What's perhaps significant is that that evening had been repeatedly laced with loud threats to return to violence if the Prime Minister Asquith called an election. So it does seem at least to be arguable that the truce may have made a serious dent in the WSPU's finances and that the threat of a return to violence was what fixed it. 
For an organisation that was extremely expensive to run, with an extravagant headquarters and a large and well-paid staff and several members of the Pankhurst family to support, losing a large percentage of its income by declaring a truce was a serious problem. Tucked away on the last page of our copy of Votes for Women on the 10th of November 1910, which was printed just a week before the truce was called off, there's even a tiny notice hidden among the classified ads. No historian seems to have picked it up. Well, no surprise, it is very small. It reads, quote, For sale, silver plate claret jug. Wedding present to Mrs. Pankhurst. Offers wanted. Well, should you have wanted to make an offer, you've been directed to the treasurer of the WSPU headquarters. Well, it's intriguing, isn't it? Can it really be that even Emmeline Pankhurst was feeling the pinch after months of truce? Well, who knows? But even if Pew's cynical speculation is overplayed, and we're not sure that it is, resuming the violence after December 1910 seriously delayed any prospect of winning votes for women. Returning to violence couldn't have been a more ill-judged tactic. Parliament resumed and the second and third conciliation bills came and went, but far from being intimidated by the suffragette violence, support in Parliament for giving women the vote now dwindled away quickly. The third of the conciliation bills was defeated by 14 votes. It was the first defeat in a women's suffrage vote since 1891. By November 1912, an attempt to slip women's votes into another bill was defeated in the Commons, this time by 173. Now, that was the worst result ever recorded for a women's franchise measure. Now, of course, there were also other reasons for these defeats. For example, in March 1912, the Irish nationalist MPs voted against women's suffrage because they wanted to keep him with Prime Minister Asquith in the hope of winning home rule from him. They knew Asquith had always been against women's votes. And then, on the day of the vote, half the Labour MPs happened to be away and unable to vote. They were at the scene of a miners' strike in the North. But the failure of the conciliation bills ran much deeper than this. The renewed violence of the Pankhurst WSBU after the failure of that first conciliation bill made it impossible for the government to make any concessions. The resumption of violence in December 1910, after the loss of the first conciliation bill, was another major mistake by the suffragettes. Any observer of politics in the years after 1910 could see that a campaign of violence, indeed mounting and increasingly life-threatening violence, was never going to make any progress towards women's votes. Now, it's not difficult to work out why. First of all, there had long been the possibility that the question of Irish home rule could descend into violence from the Ulster Protestants who objected to the possibility of rule from Dublin. In fact, there had already been violence and industrial strikes in Belfast. So for any government to be seen to be rewarding violence in any way, like making concessions to the suffragettes, was a complete non-starter. Much more significant, and barely mentioned by historians of women's suffrage, is that there was also a bitter wave of mass strikes on the British mainland between 1910 and 1912. Miners, railway workers, dockers, even schoolchildren walked out. In 1912, 40 million working days were lost. Now we have this fond idea that life in Edwardian Britain somehow sailed on in a genteel and stately way, except of course for the violence of the suffragettes. But these strikes in 1910-12 were punctuated 
by violent acts of sabotage at collieries and docks and railway yards. In Liverpool, for example, workers' barricades sprang up across the streets. The disorder was so bad that by August 1911, two Royal Naval warships steamed up the Mersey and trained their guns on the town. In 1912, troops were called out to keep order across the country. In the course of these strikes and confrontations, at least five workers were killed. To add to all of that, in January 1911, the army had been called out to assist the police in Sydney Street and Stepney, London. There was a shootout with two Latvians who were reported to be part of a revolutionary anarchist cell. Three policemen had already been murdered just before Christmas. The siege created a sensation, not only because it was replayed in one of the very first Pathé newsreels up and down the country, but also because the Home Secretary, Winston Churchill, turned up personally to watch events, conspicuously dressed in a smart top hat. Given all this going on around them, the revival of the suffragette campaign of window smashing and its new escalation into arson and bombing can only be seen as blind and foolish. All it did was to turn women's votes into a law and order issue. And that, given what else was going on, meant that the government could on no account afford to give way. Giving way would just send a signal to every Ulsterman and every angry worker up and down the country, not to mention every anarchist revolutionary, that violence and damage to property worked. No wonder the majority in Parliament in favour of women's votes, which had been solid since the 1880s, now evaporated. The suffragettes' militant campaign, which had never in truth done anything to help shift the government, was now significantly delaying the day when women would win the vote. Don't just take our word for it. Millicent Fawcett, president of the law-abiding NUWSS, had, up till now, supported the WSPU campaign. But in December 1911, she was writing that it was ruining any chance of getting the conciliation bills through. In May of that year, Swedish suffragists had written to her complaining that the violence of the Pankhurst WSPU was damaging their cause and setting back the chances of winning the vote for women in Sweden. The conference of the International Women's Suffrage Association in Budapest in 1913 made the same point. Violence in one country, they said, was setting back the cause throughout the world. British feminists like ex-WSPU officer Theresa Billington also complained, bitterly, that by portraying women as victims, specifically in the hunger strikes and force feeding, the WSPU was actually setting back the broader feminist cause by years the violence was even costing what little sympathy there was among the wider public. The suffragette campaign of militancy and violence set women's votes back, not only in Britain, but across Europe. In Britain, it was the one thing calculated to make absolutely sure the government could not make any concessions. It also won no friends in the wider public. One local study of London newspapers found that press interest in the WSPU actually declined from 1908 to 1913 as the violence mounted. As historian Jane Chapman has shown, the resumption of WSPU violence in 1911 led to an out-and-out newspaper boycott of the women's suffrage issue. Emily Panker shrugged it off, saying that the campaign had to be unpopular if it was going to be effective. Well, the reality was that it was both unpopular and ineffective. Well, if you're not yet convinced, there's hard evidence of an almost complete lack of public sympathy. 
It comes on the night of the 2nd to 3rd April 1911. Now that was the night the usual 10 yearly census was taken of the British population. Now this particular year many women objected to filling in a census form. Some argued that if they couldn't vote they shouldn't have to be counted. Quite rightly. Others objected to new questions that had appeared in the census form. These questions asked whether women worked, how many children they had had and how many of them had survived. Many believed, not without good reason, that the Liberal government intended to limit women's access to employment if it could be shown that employed women produced fewer surviving children. That would have been typical of the Prime Minister Asquith. The podcast WSPU therefore proposed boycotting the census and thousands of its followers did so. Or so it later claimed. And we now know for certain that neither of these claims is true. It was, in fact, Lawrence Houseman, a writer and long-time supporter of women's votes, who first proposed the boycott. And it was taken up first, not by the WSPU, but by the Women's Freedom League, founded by disgruntled ex-WSPU women like Teresa Billington in 1907. The WSPU only took up this idea of the boycott after a significant number of its rank and file pushed the leadership into joining. It was just like many of the militant actions the WSPU undertook, chaotic and unthought through. Now, census forms are confidential, so just how many women actually refused to fill theirs in in 1911 remained a mystery, until that is 2009, when the original individual forms were released for research. Uh huh. Now what they show is, for example, that Lawrence Houseman's own house was full of objectors that night and that he wrote on his form that there had been, quote, a quantity of females, names, numbers and ages unknown. Good man. His was in fact just one of a number of census parties that night. And if Houseman had looked through his curtains, he'd have seen that the police were staking many of them out. The managers of the Aldwych Ice Rink in London noted that 500 women and 70 men spent the night there in an all-night skating. Other objectors spent the night in caravans on Putney Heath. Elizabeth Wilding Davis, the suffragette who'd later throw herself at the King's Horse at the Epsom Derby, sneaked into the Houses of Parliament and hid in a broom cupboard, where she was discovered and duly recorded on a census form by the Clerk of Works. Emmeline Pankhurst was spotted by the police going to address the old rich skaters at a quarter to two in the morning. And then, as the skaters were entertained to a programme of songs, recitations and monologues from the Actresses' Franchise League, Mrs P went home and boldly wrote, no vote, no census, on her form. Or so she said, when the forms were released in 2009, we all discovered that in fact she'd been duly recorded in her room at the rather plush Inns of Court Hotel where she lived, along with all the other guests. Living in a hotel, of course, she'd never had a form either to fill in or to deface. She'd simply lied about it. <laughs> Whatever Emmeline Pankhurst's personal dishonesty, it had all been a good stunt and almost completely free of risk. The women who evaded or spoiled their forms faced no realistic chance of ever being prosecuted. But, like so much else the WSPU did, it backfired. When John Burns, the minister responsible for the census, got up in the House of Commons to report... He declared that, quotes, according to the information that has reached me up to the present, the number of individuals who have evaded being enumerated is altogether negligible. When the original returns were released in 2009, historians Jill Liddington and Elizabeth Crawford hunted through them and painstakingly compared them with suffrage records for names and addresses of activists. 
they concluded that, quotes, from the evidence of our database, it is difficult to challenge John Byrne's claim. Hardly any, even among the suffrage campaigners, had bothered to evade the census. All, in fact, the census campaign had succeeded in doing was to demonstrate in stark black and white and very public statistics that by April 1911, despite all the years of campaigning and despite all the publicity surrounding the conciliation bill and despite all the renewed violence of the WSBU, interest in the campaign for female emancipation in Great Britain was, quotes, negligible. The fact was that Britain was not an inch closer to women's votes in 1911 than it had been in 1903 when the WSBU had been founded. In fact, in significant respects, it was now actually further away. And this was despite a tide of opinion that was flowing in favour of women's votes across Europe and round the world. Votes for women was an idea whose time had come. Countries like Denmark, Australia, New Zealand and some of the states of America were working peacefully towards it. Some states had already given women the vote, in fact. But in Britain, progress had been halted by the suffragettes' campaign. We don't think there's any doubt, looking at the defeats women's votes began to suffer in Parliament, that the suffragettes had actually set the cause back. Even so, on the 1st of March 1912, WSPU women spread out through London's West End on the most high-profile day of window smashing yet. Mrs Pankhurst had recently been in training to throw (laughs) stones. She evidently hadn't done it before. But such was her disengagement from militancy she had persuaded everyone else to do, she still apparently could not or would not hit anything. (laughs) She was arrested anyway, along with 120 others. But this time, the Home Secretary, who was now Reginald McKenna, changed his tactics. On the 1st of March 1912, with tangible evidence of dropping support for women's votes in Parliament, falling interest in the press and negligible backing in the general public, the suffragette WSPU launched another big wave of violence, window smashing. This time, for the first time, even Emmeline Pankhurst joined in, although she didn't succeed in hitting anything. 120, including Mrs P, were arrested. But the new Home Secretary, McKenna, had decided that the suffragettes were now sufficiently serious a problem that they had to be dealt with more systematically. He took the decision to strike at the heart of the organisation. He would arrest its conspicuously wealthy leadership and charge them with criminal conspiracy. Well, by then, Emmeline Pankers was already in prison, but the police arrested Frederick and Emmeline Pethick Lawrence, the couple who'd been the movement's backers since it had set up in London in 1906. A warrant was also issued for Christabel Pankhurst's arrest, but she fled to Paris disguised as a nurse. And as we've seen, that's where she stayed, in a series of expensive apartments until the start of the war, when she moved to fashionable Deauville, the closest seaside resort to Paris with its casino and horse racing and uh, hydrotherapy baths. Meanwhile, the Pethic Lawrences were given nine months in prison, but they were released in July 1912 after a campaign led, among others, by Marie Curie. Both of them had been cruelly force-fed. Mrs Pethick Lawrence only once, once was enough, her husband repeatedly until he was deemed too weak to remain in prison. Once out of jail, the couple decided they needed to go to Canada to recover their health. They didn't return until October 1912. In the meantime, catastrophe hit them. Government bailiffs had descended on the WSBU's headquarters, 
claiming compensation for the damage that had been caused by the smashing of windows. Emmeline Pankhurst watched as they took everything away. But everything belonged not to her, nor to WSBU, but to the Pethick Lawrences, who generously housed and helped fund the WSBU since its move to London in 1906. The couple lost possessions worth over £5,000, over half a million today. However, in October, Emmeline Pankhurst tried to persuade them not to come back, but to stay in Canada. She told them that any money the WSPU raised to compensate them would have to go straight to the government. Well, this, comments historian Krista Kalman, was not entirely plausible. After all, the WSPU had plenty of other wealthy supporters who might also have been targeted by the government, but none of them were told to stay abroad. Nobody's ever really got to the bottom of this affair, though there has been some pretty wild speculation. But the plain fact of these is that the Pethick Lawrences ignored Emmeline Pankhurst's instructions and returned to England, and they were then summarily thrown out of the organisation. The public was informed there had been a difference over strategy. It was Emmeline Pethick Lawrence who'd originally chosen the famous suffragette colours of white, purple and green, and had long been the organisation's treasurer. The couple, in fact, had bankrolled the organisation since 1906. But the suffragettes' shift to arson, bombing and increasingly dangerous militancy was apparently a step too far for them. Mrs Pankers, of course, would tolerate no dissent. So the couple were thrown out. Financially, the Pethick Lawrences paid an enormous price, for which they were never compensated. The WSPU now descended into chaos. It's a conclusion that most historians have been reluctant to draw, partly because after the war, as we see in our standalone discussion on the suffragettes after 1918, former suffragettes carefully constructed a myth around what they had achieved. It's partly also because a major police raid on the organisation's large and comfortable headquarters in 1913 removed van loads of documents that have since disappeared. But piecing together the evidence that we have, it is clear that from 1912 at least, the WSPU began to fall apart. Its membership plummeted. The Pethick Lawrences had taken with them the newspaper they'd funded, Votes for Women. So Christabel Panker set up a new weekly paper, The Suffragette. In the first edition on the 18th of October 1912, she wrote defiantly, the suffragettes were now, quote, the happy few. We have no reverence for numbers, she went on. Well, it was very different rhetoric from the days when the organisation would boast that it could fill the Albert Hall and stage a procession that took 40 minutes to pass. Christabel Pankers concluded, there are already enough militants to create an intolerable situation for the government. Well, it was always her central defiant illusion that the government could be forced to concede women's votes. By the time she was writing, it had already been comprehensively proven to be untrue. Now, Votes for Women, the WSPU's former paper, now with the Pethick Lawrences, who'd started in the first place, had hit a weekly circulation of about 17,500. This on its own had been enough to pay for the WSPU's 35 full-time organisers. By January 1913, the WSPU's new paper, The Suffragette, was selling just 7,500 copies, 10,000 fewer. And the smart advertisers had fled. OK, Peter Dickinson, one of the West End's smartest stores, did take the entire back page of the first edition to advertise their latest furs. They included a stole and muff set in Russian sable lined with ermine for a cool 300 guineas, which is, according to the Bank of England calculations, a staggering £36,250 today. It was more than three times the annual pay of a teacher then but already the paper had noticeably fewer adverts than its predecessor. 
I turn over the pages of The Suffragette a year later, and there's still a Peter Dickinson ad for furs, but now the most expensive is not 300 guineas, but 10 and a half. Hunt through the rest of the paper, and you find one ad for fake furs, and one from the smart London store Heels, offering furniture. But not a great deal more. London's rich advertisers had clearly grasped that the WSBU could no longer deliver access to the large, wealthy niche market it used to command. Perhaps as a result of the escalating violence, even London's silks and satins had abandoned it. The suffragettes had achieved nothing, and the organisation was now in terminal decline. Despite what we're often told, by 1912 the suffragette campaign had achieved nothing, except probably to make votes for women less likely. And now, as its wealthy backers and much of its membership abandoned it, the suffragette WSPU sank into chaos. 1912-14 to 14 were the years when the WSPU committed its most famous acts of what Christabel Pankhurst openly called terrorism. This was when Lillian Lenton went on her spree of arson, setting fire to the Orchid House at Kew and a large number of private houses. She was continually arrested, went on hunger strike, force-fed, released, on the run. It was the botched force-feeding of Lenton in February 1913 that nearly killed her, which led the government to rush through its notorious Prisoners' Temporary Discharge for Ill Health Act. This was the act that allowed hunger-striking prisoners to be released on health grounds and then re-arrested when they were fit. It came to be known as the Cat and Mouse Act, and it was universally condemned, a very rare success for the WSBU among the wider public in these years. Playwright MP Israel Zangwill wrote, quotes, the Cat and Mouse Bill could only have been carried by rats. Yes, so good. Of course, not all the public were on their side. When the first person was released under the act... A man called Hugh Franklin, after 114 force feedings, why do we never hear about him? Wow. He and Mrs Pankhurst received hate mail from, quotes, 18 tradesmen of the City of London. The 18 tradesmen called him, in capital letters, lunatic, <laughs> and said they'd give him and old mother Pankhurst five years penal servitude and then burn them, just in case he thought trolling was invented by social media. <laughs> My God, it's outrageous, isn't it? But whatever the risks, the militant campaign barrelled on, spiralling out of control into more and more dangerous stunts. In February 1913, to take one famous example, suffragettes bombed a house which the News of the World owner, Lord Riddell, was having built on a Surrey golf course especially for Lloyd George. It's always been a bit of a mystery since Lloyd George was one of the politicians more sympathetic to women's votes. Maybe he was sympathetic because his long-standing secretary and mistress, Frances Stevenson, who was going to share the house with him, was something of a suffragist. The house was empty when the bomb went off, but actually she could easily have been there, or any of the workmen who were working on it, and been killed. But, as Christabel Pankhurst later admitted, the fact was that the WSBU had known nothing about the attack until afterwards, when they, of course, claimed credit for it. Lots of organisations do that. Hmm. During the war, November 1917, Mrs Pankhurst bumped into Lord Riddell. <laughs> I like to see that. He wrote, quote, Mrs Pankhurst smiled, but seemed rather uneasy. Oh, I didn't know it was to be your house that would be destroyed. Uh, I hope the house was well insured. <laughs> the fact was that nobody was coordinating this increasingly dangerous cycle of violence. Christabel Pankhurst had been living in Paris since March 1912. She'd acquired a fluffy little Pomeranian lapdog, the sort that had been bred by Queen Victoria and was now fashionable among the well-to-do. 
three of these little Pomeranian lapdogs actually survived the Titanic. Well, think about that for a moment. They, they survived? Yeah, who didn't? Now, Crispo was spending her time dashing off quick articles for the suffragette that dismissed marriage as a, quote, sex bargain for the woman's maintenance and claiming that all men were rapists. Venereal disease, she said, was out of control. If men wanted to show that they weren't carriers of VD, she suggested they should wear white ribbons. It didn't go down well. Meanwhile, she was issuing instructions about how tea breaks were to be organised at the London offices. That's very important. On one occasion, Annie Kenny, a founding and leading member of the WSBU, returned from one of her regular and rather costly trips to consult Christabel Pankhurst in Paris. Well, she found that in her absence, a committee had formed itself at the London HQ and was busy diverting funds into non-violent constitutional channels. Members of the suffragettes, especially in the North, ignored London's orders and made alliances with political parties or collaborated with the peaceful suffragists in the new WSS. Some, like Rose Yates and Eleanor Gaskell, set up splinter groups. It was chaos. Sylvia Pankhurst, Christabel's sister, spent her energies working to improve the conditions of the East End working class. Nobody's in charge. It was much later that ex-suffragettes created the story that Christabel Pankhurst had co-orchestrated the campaign of terror from her Paris apartment, or rather from the series of apartments she somehow occupied at Paris's smartest addresses. But the women messengers who went backwards and forwards to Paris every weekend to talk to Christabel were followed by British detectives. And Christabel's phone calls were also bugged. There was no chance at all that she could have organised a campaign of terror. In fact, the British authorities were delighted she was across the Channel and being kept out of mischief. Historian Martin Pugh reckons, and I quote him, she actually filled her days with shopping, writing and social engagements. And that was certainly the impression she gave the suffragettes who visited her. In July 1913... Emmeline Pankhurst came out of jail after another sentence, this time after three days of hunger strike, but not after any force feeding. Rumours now began to spread around the WSBU that her health had been broken by her treatment and she couldn't live long. Well, she went off to recuperate, to Paris, naturally, and she lived until 1928. The suspicion is that the news of her imminent demise was perhaps a useful rumour to encourage. We've after all seen before that Mrs P could not always be taken at her word. In August 1913, a suffragette called Mary Lee caught a train to Paris and she took two other suffragettes with her. Now, Mary Lee had been the WSPU coordinator in Dublin. In June 1912, during a visit by the Prime Minister, she'd thrown an axe at his coach and hit the Irish leader John Redmond in the head. Lee had been arrested and actually had been sentenced to five years penal servitude. She'd gone on hunger strike and been released under the Cat and Mouse Act. She'd then gone into hiding. Arriving in Paris, the three suffragettes drew lots. Mary Lee lost and was sent in to confront Christabel Pankhurst. She told her about the chaos and the suffering that had descended on the WSPU. Young women fighting for the WSPU cause, she told her, were on the run with no food, no money and no shelter. Remember, under the Cat and Mouse... As soon as you got better, you had to go back to prison. So you had to go on the run. Lee herself had seen two women trying to live in public phone boxes. Perhaps she also told her about the actress, Kitty Marion, who went to Paris herself once to try and talk to Christabel. Kitty had been forcibly fed again and again. She was in her early 40s, but she looked 70. But 
wrote Lee, Christabel had changed. She was wearing elaborate Parisian clothes. She seemed annoyed at our intrusion. She was almost flippant. We were wasting our time, she said. Now, Mary Lee was, as we've seen, a tough operator. She answered back that they were, quote, sick of taking orders from young office girls in London while the leaders were in prison, or she might have added, but perhaps didn't, in Paris. Had Christabel nothing to say, no message to give? No, wrote Lee, she had not. Mary Lee later tried again, and in January 1914, another leading WSBU activist, Beatrice Harridan, wrote to Christabel to make the same points. The headquarters, wrote Harridan, was in confusion. Christabel Pankhurst did nothing. Ever since 1907, when Emmeline and Christabel had torn up a democratic constitution produced by Theresa Billington, the WSBU had had no structures for consultation or agreement. If the Pankhurst didn't take the lead, nobody else could. And clearly, the Pankhursts were not taking any kind of lead. Strangely enough, the one clear decision Christabel took in these years was to target the Labour Party at elections, as well as the Liberal Party. Christabel's editorials for the WSPU paper The Suffragette declared a woman's war upon the Labour Party. This was bizarre. It was yet another political blunder if the object was to win women's votes. After the elections of 1910, the Liberal government was a minority and depended on the votes of the Irish and the Labour MPs. The Irish would not support women's suffrage if it meant jeopardising the chances of wringing home rule out of the Liberal cabinet. But the Labour Party had been increasingly noisy in its support for women's votes. Holding the balance of power, they might now be in a position to force the government's hand. But Christabel seemed to be in no hurry to force the government's hand. She would have nothing to do with the Labour Party. For her, it was, quotes, votes for women, liberty or death. You might also add, votes for the Tories. The government and the Labour MPs who now kept them in power must be bludgeoned into submission. Women's votes must not, whatever happened, be negotiated within Parliament behind the scenes by men. The news in September 1913 that the Danes were quietly, without fuss and without violence, preparing to give women the vote was reported in the suffragette with just four sentences on page 14, and they were largely about the Danish Premier's wife. On the 1st of May 1914, Christabel wrote to another WSPU organiser, Lady Lytton, saying, quote, We're positively sorry for the women in other countries who have got the vote without fighting for it. <laughs> we want, when the vote comes, to be able to say that we got it ourselves. That's significant. But by 1914, the WSPU was barely functioning. Whatever Christabel Pankhurst later claimed, its campaign of violence was running out of steam. In January, even Sylvia Pankhurst and her sister Adela were thrown out of the WSPU. Emmeline gave Adela a one-way ticket to Australia. Thanks, Mum. By now, two-thirds of the subscribers to the new newspaper, The Suffragette, were unmarried, perhaps unsurprising after Christabel's sustained attack on men. But that meant that they were younger, and less influential. The public was simply irritated as suffragette attacks closed art galleries and stately homes and extra security had to be laid on at racecourses. The papers were no more sympathetic. The Times's outlook for 1914 on New Year's Day that year didn't even mention women's suffrage. On the 1st of June 1914, it declared damningly that, quotes, we have little space for the restatement of arguments for or against a cause which is not urgent. The Pankhurst WSBU found itself banned from public spaces and its prisons brutally and forcibly fed. 
the campaign of violence had done nothing, except, as historian Sandra Holden puts it, quotes, provided an apparent legitimacy to the abuse of state powers by the Liberal government. This was, Holden concludes, a fundamental failure of political strategy. Whatever the story later created, the suffragettes did not win votes for women. Through a series of disastrous political blunders and strategic errors, they had made the cause of women's votes less popular and less likely to be won in the British Parliament and in a number of other countries also. But in fact, that 1st of June piece in the Times was wrong. By June 1914, the cause of women's votes had, in fact, rather suddenly and surprisingly, become urgent. It had nothing at all to do with the Pankhursts and their chaotic suffragettes. It had, in fact, to do with an entirely different group of women campaigners, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Or contact us on social media at History Café Pod. <laughs>